Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 49, The Trent Affair, or Loose Cannons Shoot in All Directions. To begin with, let's ask what the heck the Trent Affair was and why anyone would study it. After all, there will be no cannons shooting off this episode. Not literal ones. The answers to that are a bit more complicated than it sounds. The very short explanation is that the Trent Affair was the result of one hot-headed Navy captain doing something very, very foolish. This caused a sharp but short-lived diplomatic scuffle between the United States and Britain. A broader look at this question, however, gives us an opportunity to dive into Confederate-British diplomacy and the danger to the United States that international recognition of the Confederacy might bring. And why was Great Britain, or at least its government, somewhat subtly pro-Confederate? And how far might they go to allow the Confederacy to violate neutrality laws? Now let's back up and look at the wider issues involved in this. Now this episode will not focus on economic problems, but we should understand the issues around Confederate cotton diplomacy. There will be another, separate episode later to discuss that topic in more detail and explore why it ultimately failed. Certainly, Jefferson Davis and many Confederates had a reason to think that wielding cotton, King Cotton, as a weapon might work. The mighty British textile industry, mostly focused in England and specifically in regions such as Lancashire, represented an influential state interest. Cotton, though hardly the only international commodity of great value, represented a huge annual investment for Britain. Tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of workers were involved in the industry, which then exported tons upon tons upon tons of finished cloth around the globe for great profit. Great Britain, which generally enjoyed good relations with the United States despite those messy little incidents back in 1776 and 1812, had a prime position buying up southern cotton. Wealthy trading houses existed principally to deal in this one staple and finance its production and sale. And yet we might expect Britain to be pro-Union. Was there, after all, not a long shared history and culture? Had not the United States often been a willing friend in managing relationships on the American continents? Indeed, even in narrow self-interested terms, the United States had effectively allied with Great Britain to break up the Spanish and French empires in the New World. And Great Britain could hardly ask for a better neighbor for its own possessions, what is now Canada. And yet this was not predominantly the case, at least not among the elite. From the outset of the conflict, attitudes among British aristocracy or intellectuals tended to view both the Union and Confederacy with a certain amount of condescension, yet perhaps preferring an independent Confederacy. Many gentlemen of ostensible quality looked quite favorably at a divided, feuding, fighting America as a natural path towards expanding British power and influence. Besides, a separate Confederacy would, by its own word, and expressed ideology, have little interest in tariffs. This would make it an easy and agreeable market for British goods. 
Then Britain could buy southern cotton without worrying about meddlesome Pennsylvania industrialists, or competition from the sharp-eyed merchants of New York, and certainly not moralizing busybodies at New England. Culturally, too, an aristocratic disdain for ordinary Americans seemed to run through the British elite. Yet they often found common ground with the cultured, educated, gilt-edged plantation masters who often took an extended tour in Europe among them. Not all of them, of course, especially in the younger states. There were, after all, many coarse characters among slave drivers. Yet in the older colonies, such as South Carolina and Virginia, those born to wealth and privilege often seemed to measure up to the high bar of manners and ceremony expected. British nobles openly speculated that a new, formal southern aristocracy would soon be born due to the separation of the Confederacy. And opinion makers, such as those in the Times of London, openly speculated with some amount of glee that a few who lived to see the rise of America, though quite old, would live to see its fall. And yet this is not the whole story. Some among the highest-born British nobles expressed unconditional support for the United States, and furthermore, public opinion would have its own views. As always, the hoi polloi on either side of the Atlantic were more populist, less interested in abstractions of purported national interest. Many average Britons long felt a kinship with the United States, and, emotionally, implicitly tied their own burgeoning democratic institutions to it. The fall of America to civil war might, in some unknown fashion, lead to the greater domination of Britain by the aristocracy. There was also just that one little quirk. Slavery. If the British of that era prided themselves on anything, it was their abolition of slavery under the leadership of reform-minded politician William Wilberforce. In many ways greatly similar to New England abolitionists in religion, character, and education, Wilberforce became a tireless, driving will against slavery throughout the British Empire. Well before his death in 1833, he had essentially broken the power of slaveholding in the empire, while the British Navy pressured the transatlantic slave trade near to its end. Great Britain certainly had its own morally questionable history as regards slavery. Yet no British politician now could realistically express sympathy for slaveholding. By contrast, pro-Confederate Southerners frequently and openly proclaimed their love of the peculiar institution as we've seen. That appeared like an insurmountable barrier. Yet in practice, the British had always just looked in the other direction on the matter, just as many ostensibly anti-slavery Northerners often did when they bought the products of the slave system. And, after all, the United States was not openly declaring this an anti-slavery war. In practice, too, the British were historically not in the habit of propping up shaky governments unless they could fight the French in the process. Finally, of some importance is that the Prime Minister at the time was Henry Temple, or Lord Palmerston, the first liberal Prime Minister. From the start, Palmerston looked at a map and, well, believed that the Union could just never conquer the Confederacy. The Times of London also spread his views far and wide, at least on that matter, making somewhat facile comparisons to the Revolutionary War. He asked how the North alone could possibly do what Britain itself failed to accomplish. 
but Palmerston generally assumed he and his government would also mediate the settlement that he expected would become inevitable, not particularly caring to do the work for the Confederacy. There is some amount of irony in that the British liberals, descended from the Whig Party, looked quite sidelong at the American Republicans, descended from the uh, Whig Party. Now, of course, the politics involved were national. They would not inherently see eye to eye. Yet there is a certain ideological relationship. A man like Lord Palmerston, though, however broad-minded, could never entirely understand the universe of a man like Abraham Lincoln. They occupied different worlds entirely. This is not to diminish the stature of Lord Palmerston. He could be a remarkably capable hand in European affairs, and would prove no friend of war in general. Nevertheless, he showed a certain amount of steel enough during the Aberdeen government's handling of the Crimean War. He held idealistic views about constitutional government, both at home and abroad, and spent six years as prime minister, keeping British politics well in hand during that time. It is, however, also true that he held very narrow views about public participation in politics. He saw the world of aristocratic subordination as normal and natural, even laudable. Although as interested in free labor and commerce as Abraham Lincoln, he could never view the intact United States, or for that matter, the North alone, as anything other than a competitor. Although broad-minded in thought, he had a kind of reactionary tendency bred into the bone, and instinctively sided with autocrats like Napoleon III as eagerly as he defended the Second Opium War with China. Good, bad, or perhaps just a great figure who bent politics around him, Palmerston would end up shaping the British response to the Civil War. Now given all of that, what in the specific did Palmerston wind up responding to? Well, to answer, we need to dive into the world of one Captain Charles Wilkes. In the fall of 1861, Captain Wilkes was sailing around the Bahamas looking to ambush blockade runners who happened to escape the coastal cordon. Although often forgotten today, the Union Navy patrolled offshore of neutral ports. If they spotted a suspicious vessel, or really any vessel, they had some rights under international law to check its cargo and manifest. Of course, if they found a huge consignment of cotton on a vessel crewed by sailors out of South Carolina, well, they would seize the ship and cargo. There were established legal processes to this, which could involve adjudication by a prize court. All of this had to happen out of home waters, but Captain Wilkes and his own ship, the USS San Jacinto, could and did stop in at neutral ports to resupply. After all, the United States and Britain were generally on friendly terms, and the port was open. He, of course, naturally saw that blockade runners who evaded him tied up right next door on the docks. Now, he might try to hunt them once they left port, but they were otherwise safe at anchor. There being only so many ports near enough to the Confederate coast, well, they represented another choke point. Most runners would get through here. But again, they always had to be wary that, when weary and worn out and unawares, the Navy might suddenly swoop down upon them. On patrol near Nassau, in the Bahamas, Captain Wilkes received word that Jefferson Davis had dispatched two envoys to Britain, and he, that is Wilkes, was to capture them if possible. 
if possible, in this case, again meant before they reached the safety of a British port. Once there, the two envoys, two men by the name of John Mason and John Slidell, would just board a British ship and sail cheerfully for London. This news became widely known in and around the Confederacy, the United States, Britain, and probably France and Spain long before they even left Charleston. And despite being prominent secessionists, their role in things will wind up being largely passive and pointless, except as the objects in this forthcoming comedy of errors. Unfortunately for most involved, the Navy couldn't catch the blockade runner before it slipped into port at Nassau. The envoys, however, wound up relocating to Cuba, because they had just missed a ship bound for England. This delayed them for three weeks, during which time most everyone believed they were already on board a different ship called the Nashville. This became the subject of a hot chase across the Atlantic, which of course came to nothing. Both America and Britain found themselves somewhat confused when it turns out that the Nashville had no such envoys aboard. Meanwhile, Captain Wilkes, back in the Caribbean, received fresh intelligence that John Mason and John Slidell were about to cross the ocean in the RMS Trent, an ordinary mail carrier vessel. And by intelligence, I mean that it was openly printed in a Cuban newspaper. He literally just happened to cross it while chasing after the commerce raider CSS Sumter. Now, here is the problem with Captain Wilkes. His career had been, pardon the pun, dead in the water prior to the Civil War. Although a very skillful sailor and an experienced explorer, nobody liked him. Every interaction with Wilkes seemed to go wrong, and if you ordered him to do one thing, he'd go out and do the opposite seemingly on general principle. Even when the war broke out, the Navy hesitated before giving him a command, ultimately doing so only because of the need to use every available resource. Besides, how much trouble could Wilkes possibly cause hunting blockade runners or privateers far from the coast? Worst case scenario, he just doesn't accomplish much. Right? Well, we wouldn't be having this episode if that was the case. When Captain Wilkes discovered news of the Trent, he didn't just rush off to create an international incident. No, he carefully judged his options and went out of his way to cause the most trouble possible as in he literally got out the law books and then convinced himself he had a legal right to do, well, what he was about to do. Which he emphatically did not. Sadly, although he only fancied himself an expert on maritime law, Wilkes was pretty good at the actual sailing part. He quickly and accurately identified the likely course that the Trent would take, intercepted her, and on November 8th, 1861, ordered her to stand down and be boarded. Now, this was not a good idea, but Wilkes had not totally yet broken international law. Unfortunately, Wilkes proceeded to do just that. He declared that Mason and Slidell, ordinary passengers aboard the Trent insofar as British law saw it, were, quote, the embodiment of diplomatic dispatches. That is, Wilkes named them as the human form of diplomatic letters, which was certainly a um, novel approach. Wilkes took both into custody. Worst of all, Captain Wilkes then just let the Trent go on her merry way. This was a very bad coda to the whole sorry affair, though for somewhat complex reasons. First, 
the Trent naturally and immediately took the news to the British government. But second, his methods basically made it impossible for the Lincoln administration to easily climb down. At a bare minimum, Wilkes should have taken the Trent in for adjudication by a prize court. Again, that's literally a court that deals with maritime law, and specifically the legality of seizing ships, goods, or persons for most purposes. An American court might have declared the Trent improperly taken, freed her and the passengers, and probably cooled tempers considerably. This was, in fact, roughly in line with what the British themselves declared as the norm in an internal memorandum circulated within the Palmerston administration, ironically as a result of the whole Nashville affair. Any actual diplomatic dispatches, however, and not their uh, human embodiments, could have been properly taken and examined, and the prize court probably would have supported that. But Wilkes actually failed to even bother with that. According to some sources, there really were dispatches aboard the Trent from the Confederacy. Wilkes instead let these slip out from under his nose. In any case, by failing to perform even the minimal diligence as described, Captain Charles Wilkes, in effect, gave Britain cause for war. Sure, one could perhaps suggest that Britain, too, had a reputation for high-handed pretensions at sea. Yet they generally stuck pretty solidly to established diplomatic and maritime practice. Arguably, Britain codified it, after all. Captain Wilkes, for his part, returned to the United States, and after a brief stopover at Fort Monroe, he unloaded his unhappy prisoners in Boston. There, he received a hero's welcome. First came a feast in his honor, editorials praising his actions, public speeches, and even a vote of thanks from Congress. Down in Washington, however, the Lincoln administration's collective smile quickly turned into bitter puckering once they realized exactly what Wilkes had done. Gideon Wells cautiously warned Wilkes about some of the problems, not that Wilkes seemed to ever understand it. The administration realized what he did not. Whatever abstract legal justifications they could come up with, and none of those were really going to suffice in the first place, Britain was not likely to take that insult lying down. Lincoln's immediate concern was to avoid British recognition of the Confederacy. Although not likely to lead immediately to direct British assistance to the Confederate cause, recognition would help in many ways. It would aid financing and the purchasing of war material, which they were having difficulty with. It would make the blockade more difficult and harder to enforce. But it would also officially open up diplomatic channels, and that could potentially lead to some sort of British intervention in the conflict down the line. For obvious reasons, both Abraham Lincoln and Secretary of State William Seward needed to find a way to avoid that. The sheer outpouring of adoration heaped upon Wilkes, however, made it difficult to quietly deal with the problem. For the moment, the administration tried to let back channels of communication to Britain know that they intended to work towards resolving matters, just given some time. The problem was, the British lion quickly jumps to its feet, roaring once Wilk tweaked its nose. For once, at least, Lord Palmerston definitely had public opinion completely on his side. While the London papers vigorously railed against the arrogance of Americans, Palmerston furiously hurled his hat to the ground during a cabinet meeting and declared, 
I don't know whether you are going to stand this, but I'll be damned if I do. Palmerston immediately demanded a response from the United States, and to add a little weight to his words, dispatched a fresh contingent of soldiers to British North America, what is now Canada. Although far too small to be considered a military threat, the point was to make sure President Lincoln knew Palmerston meant business. The Prime Minister also made clear that he could, and would, stop sales of armaments or war materials to the Union, and do so much more easily than he could open the way for the Confederacy. Palmerston arguably exercised a considerable measure of restraint here, given that a number of men actually thought that Secretary of State Seward and Abraham Lincoln were warmongers who deliberately were trying to provoke conflict. Whatever else he was, however, Lord Palmerston was neither rash nor stupid, and he probably realized that America was unlikely to deliberately spark conflict when they were desperately trying to buy up all kinds of British-made weaponry and other goods in quantity. In the meantime, Charles Adams, the American ambassador to Britain, spent his days trying to smooth over the crisis as fast and quickly and energetically as he could. Back in Washington, Secretary of State William Seward immediately had seen the problem and was, in fact, immediately pressing to release Mason and Slidell. The only problem was finding some kind of formulation that would satisfy, even if it would not entirely please, all sides. And the ultimate resolution of the matter came down to Lincoln's willingness to eat a little bit of crew. One war at a time, he said. Ultimately, Wilkes had acted without orders, and the government knew it, and many influential men knew it. Although still treated as a public hero, so many people of influence recognized that the good captain had gone way out on a limb. Wilkes arrogated to himself authority no man of good sense would ever entrust to him, and it was going to cost the nation dearly, unless his actions were disavowed thoroughly. Besides, as Lincoln pointed out, there was a dash of sweetness to take with the bitter. By condemning Wilkes, London in effect conceded their own cause in the War of 1812. This in no way mattered to Lord Palmerston, but Lincoln at least could take a small dose of national pride on the matter. And given a few weeks to cool off, it actually turned out that America still had some good friends in Britain. They spoke out, condemning the actions of Wilkes but separating them from the government. Here, Secretary William Seward receives quite a bit of credit for timely action. He had immediately sent word to London that the United States government had neither ordered nor condoned the seizure in the first place, and in fact could not have, they didn't know Mason and Slidell were on the Trent. It didn't entirely resolve the problem, but it did soothe the anger in London, and particularly the cabinet. In late December, Lincoln and Seward ended the crisis by quietly releasing the envoys once public attention had passed. Now, Seward's official response came across as a rambling, confused assortment of nonsensical reasons trying to vaguely argue that Wilkes' actions were correct. The British apparently recognized this as a matter of domestic politics and face-saving rather than a serious opinion. As they did, in fact, receive the outcome they wanted, a little bit of meaningless verbiage could slide. The shipments of war material proceeded, and in the end, nothing changed. In fact, Captain Wilkes' seizure of the Trent was just about the only chance Mason and Slidell had. 
While the pair finally arrived in London, quite pleased with themselves and armed with high hopes for recognition and perhaps much more, their hopes were false. Lord Palmerston had not secured their release out of any interest in the Confederacy, but because British honor and naval security had been at stake. In the immediate aftermath, Mason and Slidell anticipated they would soon be formally received by the British government. As the weeks turned into months, they discovered just how wrong they were. As for Captain Wilkes, his foolishness cost him very little in the short run and everything in the long run. Because he had just become something of a popular hero, Lincoln and Wells could not easily remove him. Public support for the war mattered, and he was now too well known to quietly remove from command. Also, being Wilkes, he would probably make a public fight of any attempt to do so. To make matters worse, while Wilkes remained a capable sailor, he certainly did not learn from the experience. He eventually received a promotion, and a small fleet with it, stationed in the West Indies as before. He could continue to hunt blockade runners well off the coast. However, he repeatedly irked Washington by commandeering ships on his own authority, ships meant for officers of equal rank and far greater accomplishments. While staying somewhat more within the letter of the law, the now Commodore Wilkes also went out of his way to annoy every nation sailing those waters with more high-handed inspections and demands and belligerence. That included just about every European and American nation. Secretary Wells may have allowed this just to give Wilkes enough rope to hang himself. Wilkes eagerly obliged. In 1863, Commodore Charles Wilkes finally managed to step out of line too far by the second most brazen, but possibly most stupid, act in his entire life. He decided to seize the USS Vanderbilt. To explain the history of this ship and its particular importance would be both lengthy and irrelevant. The long and short of it is that it was the pride and joy of Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt. Among the richest and most important industrialists of the age, Vanderbilt's business acumen came from his iron will, his brilliant perceptiveness, and his relentless perfectionism. He was also, very emphatically, not the kind of man Wilkes should ever have toyed with. Vanderbilt was an enthusiastic Unionist. He had proudly loaned the ship, reputedly the fastest steamer in the nation, to the government in order to make a real difference in the war effort. Its original assignment was to have been an attempt to crush the Merrimack or Virginia. Vanderbilt, emphatically, did not offer it so that Wilkes could paddle about the Caribbean in luxury. Also, it was a specifically bad idea to ever get on Cornelius Vanderbilt's bad side. This was not that easy to do, yet over the years, many men had tried to screw him out of business deals, cheat him, or otherwise play false. They invariably soon discovered that Vanderbilt would pay any price to wreck them, and generally gained on the deals he made to do this anyway. The Lincoln administration finally had had enough of Wilkes. Using the USS Vanderbilt as the ostensible reason, they recalled Wilkes and put him to court-martial. There really was no defense. The only upside was that Wilkes was forced into retirement instead of being thrown into a military prison. Though given a considerable amount of leniency in memory of his years of service, he would spend the last decade of his life sitting quietly at home while other men won honors and victories. Though not without real talents and accomplishments, Wilkes' character, not his skills, defined him. Somehow, 
he always found ways to make new problems. He universally seemed to either never understand, or more likely, never cared about the difficulties he created for his superiors. But if Wilkes was a problem for the Lincoln administration, it turns out that the Confederacy had just as many irritating annoyances in command. So next week, let's see poor Robert E. Lee have to deal with a couple of those stinging flies at the Battle of Cheat Mountain. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.